Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Laura Savatsky, Technology Transfer Officer for Varsity Inc., a healthcare company known for supplying all things blood, as well as a large research footprint at the Blood Research Institute in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Laura has been responsible for technology transfer adversity for about 20 years. Prior to Versity, Laura was a vice president at Prodessa, a startup diagnostics company that she co-founded, which was later acquired by GenProbe. Laura received her BS in biochemistry and molecular biology from Marquette University and her MBA from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Additionally, she is a certified licensing professional and a registered technology transfer professional. She is currently the chair-elect for Autumn and serves on the board for the Alliance of Technology Transfer Professionals. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. And thanks again for taking part in the podcast. So I like to start things off generally in these podcasts by asking our guests a little bit about their journey to tech transfer, um, specifically a little bit about their background, what led them to tech transfer, and then ultimately how you ended up at Versity. Sure, I'll give you the, the brief highlights. Um, I was a research scientist in my early career, starting at a very young age of 17, working in a university lab, doing the dishes, caring for the lab animals, and then they let me advance to some other procedures like good old H&E staining and differential cell counts, radial immunodiffusion, and some others that got me really excited. Um, <laughs> a few months in, I was invited to work on a project for NASA. Um, they asked me to refine a technique that measured muscle atrophy in rats that they were going to send up into orbit on one of the space shuttles. So from since forever, I was a science geek through and through. And I really loved what intense study and research in a field could do to give us new ideas and solutions for practical life that could really change in, change things forever and have an ongoing impact. I was also super fortunate that people around me wanted me to succeed and trusted me to deliver something of value, even as I struggled to swim in the deep end. So I credit many of my early managers and mentors assigning me truly difficult tasks and then just letting turning me loose and telling me, figure it out. I'm here to talk about it if you need me, but I expect you can do it on your own. So my interest in tech transfer specifically was sparked in my third role as a research scientist, um, where I had a chance to work with a very small team that ultimately grew into the startup company Prodessa. That early experience in college of figuring it out and having the confidence in myself that I really could do that, figuring it out, 
was crucial for that later success. We were working through all the complexities of the very first multiplex PCR that was clinically offered at a time when basic PCR itself was just discovered. And I was also working out how to run a CLIA certified laboratory and building out and supervising a technical team. So all of that really stretched me and it was incredible fun and so exciting. And at the end, you know, I had that feeling like when you go off, when you get off the roller coaster, with your hair all blown back and saying again, with a big smile on your face. And so for me, that that first startup experience is what made me choose my next role in tech transfer so that I could repeat that kind of exciting roller coaster ride and, and do it again and again. Well, that's quite a background starting out at such a young age and then having the opportunity to work on a project for NASA and then having just such great mentors in college and then ultimately landing in a startup, which was sounds like it was just a really amazing experience. Um, and so was Varsity were your first tech transfer role then? Yes. Um, back in the day, so Varsity is a really unusual company and it's been known as the Milwaukee Blood Center, then Blood Center of Southeastern Wisconsin. And when I started working there, it was Blood Center of Southeastern Wisconsin. Then we had a name change to Blood Center of Wisconsin. And then recently we had a name change to Versity when we merged with other blood centers outside of the Wisconsin borders. That's really fascinating. It sounds like it's a really interesting organization. I mean, a lot of the people I've interviewed here have been traditional tech transfer offices, but it sounds like yours is very different. It sounds somewhat like a hybrid. Can you tell us a little bit about Versity and, and how it functions? Sure. So I think I think we are a really unique organization. We're we're a nonprofit focused and dedicated to saving the lives of patients through transfusion medicine. Um, many to most people in academic tech transfer operations are at universities, at least the academic tech transfer operations. And those missions are largely educational. Some other tech offices are part of independent research institutes like the Fred Hotch Cancer Institute or others. Our, our structure is a little bit different, but much more similar to an independent research institute. Our formal business names and structures exist under the umbrella of Versity Incorporated, with each state um, having their own affiliated business, like Versity Wisconsin, which is formerly Blood Center of Wisconsin, Michigan Blood, which is now Versity Michigan, which was uh, another blood center in Michigan. We have affiliates and run statewide blood operations in five states including Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. And additionally, we did acquire a laboratory operation in Texas. Um, so our main business lines are in providing blood products, um, medical services in the form of transfusion services in the hospitals where we um, serve our blood products up to the masses there, um, diagnostic laboratory testing, and then research. We have at any one time close to 100 active clinical trials through our Medical Sciences Institute, which is one of our research divisions, while also operating Wisconsin's third largest federally funded basic science research program at the Blood Research Institute, 
which is the name of the building, actually not the business, where the work is done. So you think of the, the BRI as kind of the, the research department for Versity. And my office runs a blend of activities that a tech transfer professional would expect to find at both an academic shop and um, a tech transfer office that you might find in industry. Since we commercialize and sell products and services ourselves, we sometimes perform like an industry partner would with things like freedom to operate searches, license negotiations to actually bring technology into the organization rather than negotiating to get our technologies out, um, and other things that you would you would find in that uh, that industry environment. So my office is responsible for protecting versity-wide assets that may have been created in a research environment, but also assets that may have been created by another segment of the business that doesn't operate like an academic place at all. So things like trademarking names of new laboratory tests or working with our information technology department to deploy new software solutions to manage the blood supply, those would be examples of some other projects that I would work on. But still, the, the bread and butter of the, the office at Versity remains at our Blood Research Institute and the inventions made with grant dollars. So our main focus of our research areas include immunology, bleeding and clotting in vessels, and the process of hemostasis that happens there and in the bone marrow, and also stem cell biology. We also have a number of labs doing some cancer research, um, and that includes both research on leukemia, lymphoma, and solid tumors. Wow. Given all you do, I would imagine you must have a pretty big office then in terms of professionals. Uh -huh. you, you would think so, but no, we have the tech transfer office has one employee and that's me. And I have <sighs> also an assistant, with a few others, um, several student interns. And I'm actually really lucky that I have a number of advisors and committees that provide oversight. So technically I report in on paper to our VPR or vice president for research, but we have an intellectual property committee that helps with um, invention disclosure reviews and assessments, and then also a technology transfer review group of basically all of the vice presidents within the organization that look at the entire program that I'm providing. I don't know how you do it by yourself. That's, I mean, just the scope of things that you handle, that's uh, a pretty large task, I would imagine. It definitely keeps me busy. You know, we're I'm responsible for the patent and licensing activities to bring new innovations into the organization and then to commercialize our own inventions. So there's always kind of that that tension. There's always a struggle for time, I think, in any office. We're asked to do so many different things. But alongside some of that um classic activity is everything that you need to do for the business support that's needed to make the underlying research happen. So I also manage negotiation of agreements around collaborations, confidential information. I do all of our material transfer agreements and data use agreements and so on. And we execute about 150 new agreements each year through my office. 
I think so. what's amazing to me is you said this Versity was your first tech transfer job. You came from a startup. So you had no tech transfer experience. You've been here 20 years. So you've had a lot of on-the-job learning, I would say. I definitely did. I definitely did. Um, and again, that that early experience in just figuring it out, I don't know what it was about me or how my managers interacted with me. But the thing that really seemed to work and where I really seemed to blossom was when they gave me a problem with no specific instructions on what to do and said, here you go. <laughs> and that always seemed to work really well for me. And I would I would get to work and start getting my arms around it and have a lot of conversations with people about what they expected and what they thought about this and that and the other thing. And it always seemed to work. So Yeah, it's really interesting that your background of having that experience in college really made you very well suited for this position because you are essentially a one-man shop, woman shop with, you know, some interns and some other committees that help you. But you really have had to continue that trend of just figuring things out since you wear so many hats. And I think that's really impressive. Well, thank you. So let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk about Bydol. Um, we're coming up in December on the 40th anniversary of Bydol. And I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on its impact on innovation in the U.S., uh, particularly U.S. universities and in organizations such as yourself, which is kind of a, a hybrid between a university and an and industry. Sure. I mean, I think of this as a really great story of our tax dollars hard at work for the American people and of how financial incentives and incentives of any kind actually work. You actually get the results you want through incentivizing people. So as most of us know in, in the field and from history, our innovation system in the United States was fairly stagnant in the 60s and 70s. And the government was looking for a way to change that. And in a nutshell, the Bayh-Dole Act gave inventors and academic institutions themselves the right to file and control patent applications and any resulting profits from that process, so any resulting profits from licensing agreements, et cetera. And that was really um, transformative for the way people behaved. And while a few rights were preserved to protect the public interest, suddenly there was this freedom to make this technology your own, right? And this opened up all sorts of possibilities and hired inventors to do new things. And it incentivized them because, um, as you may know, all federally funded academic institutions are required to have an a revenue sharing policy with their inventors who um, have who make research discoveries using federal funds. And it that has sparked just a tremendous amount of activity in the space. And it is, in my opinion, the single biggest impact to today's innovation economy here in the US. Yeah, it it's really you don't see legislation like Bayh-Dole come around very often anymore. It was so broad and so encompassing and trying to get, you know, congressional bipartisanship on something like that that is so sweeping is is hard. Given that it's been around 40 years, do you see anything in terms of the act 
itself that you would advocate in terms of changing that you think might help universities or other research institutions? Yeah. Well, at year 40 of the legislation, which has been pretty much unchanged since the start, the researchers remain really productive and creative with these research funds. It's it's working, you know, R01 style grants where scientists present their own original ideas are still the most productive mechanism to generate new inventions. And I think the more that we try to control and prescribe the, the research product by a very specific instructions or, or mandates, administrative practices, et cetera, the more we pile these on, the more people have to um, pay attention to that rather than the creative idea and the worse the outcome. I think it's better to provide the funds remove the administrative burdens as much as we can and and cost as much as we can and just let the work move forward. Um, so th- by using this kind of process, I think you're going to get surprising discoveries along the way rather than checking off a list of a work product that the government specifically asked for. Um, so I think that same thing can be said of the technology transfer process as well. So as the industry matures in the U.S. and abroad, tech transfer professionals are responsible for more and more things. So everything just keeps kind of piling on. Um, and the more we try to put metrics around known outcomes and known things that we want to prescribe, the more you're going to get just that. So it's like in anything, you get what you measure. So if we start measuring only certain things, we're going to get only those things and we're not going to get new possibilities. And I think we're really seeing the effects of Baidol right now during this pandemic, I would argue, because I think we're seeing unprecedented cooperation between universities and and industry to try and get technology and science out of the universities into industry to try and come up with, whether it's a diagnostic test or it's a vaccine, or it's a, a treatment. So I, I think we're really seeing the benefits of having Bidol for as long as we've had, um, because you see this kind of really amazing partnership. You know, it's always been there, but I think it's been really interesting to watch it the last two months or so, um, as industry is really working collaboratively to get that technology out out into the public to try and solve the problem of this pandemic. So let's switch gears and talk about numbers. Can you tell us a little bit about the number of inventions that get disclosed to your office? Specifically, how many you file on, how you even figure out what you're going to file on, and overall, essentially what your patenting process is? Sure. I get these kind of questions about, you know, metrics and performance from my boss all the time, who's job it is to make sure that the performance of the the office is up to snuff. So I'm very comfortable answering those for you. But I also want to recognize that in our present environment, I think a lot of offices are going to be under much more pressure than usual to um, perform in certain ways uh, against metrics, especially that revenue number universities and businesses are going to be economically squeezed in this COVID environment right now. And so I just want to let everybody know that this 
tech transfer field, it's a very long time horizon kind of an investment. R&D always has been. Research takes a long time. So I don't think it's real fair for tech offices to be to be squeezed about um, making major changes in profitability. But in adversity, I was really lucky. I inherited a great portfolio of patents that was quite large and extensive. And so I had a lot to work with. However, that large patent portfolio, there were many what I would consider um, losers in there. So our job in tech transfer is partly it's to protect the intellectual property, but also it's to separate these winners from the losers. Um, That's an important um, step. I always tell my inventors, we don't patent because we can, we patent because we think we can make money on that particular invention. Um, So uh, what we did, what I did to help pay for my office was pay a lot of attention to how much money we were spending and try to save as much as we could. What I was looking to do was get the office to profitability. And I knew that was going to be a combination of both paying attention to new revenues coming in, but then also the expense line itself so that I wasn't overspending beyond our means. So that must have been a lot of patents that you cut back. It really was a fair number. Uh, So that exercise alone was able to get me to profitability through just a couple of new licenses and then um, paring down our patent portfolio into about into about half um, was able to get the office to profitability in just under two years. So the other area I thought I was really lucky and fortunate in was that of um, free advice. So I'm an office of one. A lot of us are in very small offices. We don't have a lot of expertise within our office. Um, a lot of times on a particular technology area. And you have to go outside to find experts in that area to help you predict what the market's like, to help you predict where this technology might be going in the future, et cetera. And I really lean heavily on the scientists that I have available to me locally, either at Versity or area campuses, anybody that I happen to know within my circle. So These folks, many of whom are at Versity, have very good business sense and instincts about separating the winners from the losers when you start talking about market potential, total market size, what kind of products might you might be able to make out of a technology, what does insurance reimbursement look like, et cetera, et cetera. So you kind of go through this visioning exercise of okay, take this technology, what can we turn it into? And then who's going to care? You know, who's going to want this thing? Are they going to be able to pay for it, et cetera? So my job is to really ask a lot of questions and listen and push back and and test. So I feel like like I'm pretty lucky that they let me still pick their brains, even though I'm, I'm kind of pushy and asking all these questions. But I think it's important because it is our, our future technologies and it's what we all get pretty jazzed about is how science can change the future for the better. So that's, I think that's really awesome. And because my office is that office of one, you've got to figure out ways to be creative and make 
the most out of the resources that you have available to you. And this is a business of people. So as much as I can get people to help me and to help this task, um, the better for the bottom line overall. So your question originally, though, was around volume um, and metrics. And I use the, the Autumn Stat database to benchmark my office against other offices uh, that are, I just take a big average in the United States. It's a, a great way to, to benchmark your own performance against that of your peers. And you can slice and dice the data any way you like, but I just take it as a big overarching average. And I use actually the, the median instead of the average because I think it's a little bit more informative. But we run, um, you know, we, we run about six of the main indicators each year. And that's those, uh, that licensing survey that Reagan Robertson asks tech transfer people to fill out every year. I believe Reagan was also on your, your podcast. He pulls that uh, licensing survey together for Autumn every year. Yeah, he was. He was episode number six. He was a great interview, a very creative guy. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, you know, we we peg ourselves to uh, this $10 million in research funding. You're supposed to have a disclosure for every um, $2 million to $2.5 million in research funding. We run right around that, that average for the disclosure rate. However, after... Um, you know, we start our pipeline, which is, you know, the disclosures I have coming in. The next thing that you do is you make a decision about how many patents are you going to file off of those disclosures. And that's where our metrics start to look a lot different than other offices. We file only at about half the rate at what other offices do. So overall, we're just a lot more choosy on what we move forward um, I learned that lesson from having this really large, extensive patent portfolio in my early years um, and seeing that many of those things were not marketable and not useful, that I, I knew I had to figure out good ways of separating those winners from the losers right off the bat. And that's hard to do. That takes a lot of conversation and a lot of a lot of work and a lot of minds to think about that particular technology. But I think at the heart of it, that's why the office then is able to license out good, useful technologies at six to 10 times the rate of other offices. We don't have any huge, big blockbuster license deals. We just do a lot of deals on sort of base hits. And I don't charge exorbitant amount of money. I just pay attention to the royalty rate. And helping that licensee uh, make a product as much as we can. So we look at their business plan. I stay in touch and in contact with them. I ask them how we can help. At the end of the day, our through this process, our revenues then are also quite a lot higher. And I, I know that people might be jealous that, you know, our office has been profitable since, you know, its second year of inception. But um it's it's not an easy thing to do. You have to constantly be paying attention to the finances. And for me as a tech transfer person, that's really not where my heart is at, but it's what my boss asks me to do. And at the end of the day, I'm employed through him and under him. So 
I've got to keep the boss happy. I work for my boss and to make him look good. And he thinks money looks really good. So <laughs> um, we do about 10 to 20 times the revenues of other offices, somewhere in that range. Uh, but it's hard to be, you know, consistently performing at that rate. I have to be inking new license deals continuously. We've got obviously old deals that fall by the wayside. Patent cliffs are quite the nightmare when they happen on some of your your um, popular technologies. But you know, it's kind of like winning the Super Bowl championship. Once you do it once or twice, they expect you to do it over and over again. So now I'm kind of stuck. Yeah, I could totally see why with revenues that high, your boss is probably always looking for repeatability, right? Right. And we do have good repeatability, but again, it just doesn't come that easily. You have to really push to get that. So I'm really focused on telling the story about the innovation and the technology and how this is mission centric, um, how it's good for the world, our neighbors, our partners, et cetera. And my boss is very focused on the health of our foundation which is the, the business unit that holds our intellectual property assets um, and pays those bills, but also holds assets to be used for um, the researchers. And that's where our individual researchers have um, access to funds to do um, more research. Those, those are our internal dollars. So he pushes me to make money for the organization. Um, and one of the areas that I think is a big potential for us that right now we're not doing so great at is um, startup activity. We've, we're a small organization. We're only supposed to have one startup every, used to be 10 years. Now with the, the rise in startup activity that we're seeing around the nation, we should be doing a, an, an organization our size about one startup every five years. We had um, two of them uh, just in 2018, but before that we really only had one. So we had one very, very successful startup. So we've got very small numbers, excellent success with the startups that we have, but very low activity there. So it's one area that I'm really focused on paying attention to is finding um, finding entrepreneurs that want to take some of our technologies and move them forward. We've got a lot of technologies in the cellular immunotherapy space. We've got a lot of chimeric antigen receptor or CAR-T related technologies. So if anybody's listening to this and wants to be an entrepreneur and start up a company and wants to take one of our technologies forward, give us a call. <laughs> um, the, the other reason I think we don't have quite as much startup activity as a university is that we don't have undergrads. A lot of uh, new business ideas come or are brought forward through undergrads, and we just don't have that population of people within our mix within our midst. So that's one of the reasons I think our startup activity is a little bit lower. Additionally, we really don't have. Um, the same kind of um, pressures from the states to engage in startup activities. Universities take a lot of money from the state to help um, to help uh, fund the university and the way that it operates toward uh, you know educating all of these students for the future. 
But as a community nonprofit, we don't have that educational mission to this large number of undergrads. We have a much smaller student population that's much more focused on um, blood banking. So we don't have this large amount of funding from the state of Wisconsin that then we have to come back and prove to the state of Wisconsin we did something useful with it, like creating jobs for the state. So that's another reason that we don't have quite as much pressure to show a startup activity and economic development activity as other organizations might. It's not really a key goal for us. Um, like it is for others. That makes sense. So you don't have the pressure like a University of Madison or Marquette have to have an impact on the, the local community. Exactly. If we do have an impact on the local community, it's through our healthcare mission, not in educating a large number of students. So we're really focused on that healthcare mission and saving pa- saving patient lives. Um, so that to us is great success. Got it. Got it. Now, what about um, you mentioned you do a lot of clinical trials. Uh, You must have a lot of corporate partners then, given the amount of clinical trials you're running. Um, Actually, we have we have some that come to us time and time again. But for the most part, if you talk about industry sponsored research, this is another area where we could really we could really grow when you look at what other research organizations get for, um, you know, these research collaboration agreements and um, companies that that give money for specific research projects, we're well below average on that. The partners that we do have, we've often had for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, they come to us over and over and over again. Um, But we just don't have as many of those kinds of partnerships as, as we could. Now, what about um, how those deals are structured? Are they all kind of similarly structured um, since you have had the same corporate partners for this for a lengthy amount of time or they all have different structures? How does that work? Mm-hmm. The partnerships that we've had, they each have very unique requirements. And because of the unique requirements that they have, they have really unique deal structures. So some are structured like a pure grant. Um, so, you know, we have an idea, it's, it's almost like an investigator-initiated grant, and it, it just happens to be in an area they're extremely interested in. Others are more like um, a license for them to access specific um, research assays or research reagents or specific services. And sometimes these kinds of partnerships do lead into a classic license for um, patented technology that we have or um, patentable technology. We have many licenses for materials themselves. So we have quite, quite a few licenses for antibodies and other reagents that are used in diagnostic testing, for example. Are you doing a lot now with COVID and convalescent plasma and things like that? Or is that something that's growing given the current pandemic? So we're doing a couple um, really unique things for for COVID. One, we're we're collecting um, convalescent plasma and storing and banking it and distributing it to our hospital partners as much as possible. Um, convalescent plasma right now is um, currently the the best treatment option out there for people who are seriously ill. But um, the other thing that's really interesting that we're doing is 
through a project that we've dubbed uh, Project Longhorn. So our organization purchased uh, Senatron, which is a laboratory outfit um, out of Texas uh, a couple of years ago. And this laboratory operation closely aligns with our diagnostic laboratories. And the project that Senatron is working on right now that we're helping them across our five states of um, blood center operations is producing in very large quantity viral transport media for molecular testing. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, we need these hundreds of millions of tests as a nation for COVID testing. And every single time a person gets tested, their swab has to go into a tube. And these are the tubes that Senatron is creating. And they're a little bit different than the viral transport media that I was familiar with back from my Prodessa days, which was meant to transport a live virus so that you could do culture work and um, molecular work on it separately. This is meant to inactivate that virus upon being put in there so that um, you don't have fear when you open that tube up that the healthcare worker in the laboratory might get infected with this um, with this sample. So it's just for like antigen detection and or um, PCR, downstream PCR techniques. That's really neat. That's really neat. Yeah, they, they did um, through our Aurora uh, site in Illinois, a team there, they're doing approximately 100,000 of these tubes a day, filling and capping them and packaging them up and labeling them. It's a lot of tubes, it seems like. How big of a facility is that? Well, they had to sort of um, bring in people and reorganize and reset up the facility so that the workers could maintain proper distance while yeah. they were working on this. They were using tons of re- these, um, like an Eppendorf-style repeating pipettes to yep. dispense liquids into all these tubes. Um, it's not a huge facility. But it's amazing what you can do when you have organized and very motivated people. Dedicated people, yeah. And you're in the middle of a pandemic and what you're doing is extremely important to try and get that under control. That's awesome. Uh, Just a round out on the corporate partners. What about the role of philanthropic organizations like the Gates Foundation, Parker Institute? Do you guys have any or much, I should say, interaction with philanthropic kind of organizations like that? We, we have some. I mean, we do have a number of smaller grants from places like Alex's Lemonade Stand, which funds uh, leukemia research. And many of our postdoc or grad students are funded by small grants from places like the American Heart Association. People might be familiar with the American Heart Association if they've ever done um, or their kids have done like these jump events where they raise money for the AHA. Um, we've got grants from the Multiple Sclerosis Society. One of our PIs does um, work on the immune system because multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease of the central nervous system. She studies that link between the immune system in um, the brain and the immune system in our blood and how those two immune systems are separate yet talk to one another. And also um, places like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So these smaller grants are especially important, I think, to develop the next generation of scientists because 
largely they go to supporting a student for a period of time, like a year of their career, their early career. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes for those students to find jobs. Um, you know, some of them get postdoc positions, but but not always, or, you know, they may be interested in going in a different direction. So that's that's kind of cool. Um, you mentioned we talked about all the clinical trials, all the licensing agreements you do, because you do do a lot of licensing. Um, and having had 20 years of of doing licensing for Versity, what would you say, um, looking back at that and reflecting on that, what might you have done differently if you knew then what you know now, kind of like the Monday morning quarterbacking type of thing? Yeah. Um, early on, I think I was like really quick to jump in and try to fix it and try to get something done. But now that I'm a little bit older and a little bit more seasoned, I think I've learned the value of just sitting back and sitting back and listening first. And then you're able, I think, to do a better job at finding solutions and not running into roadblocks because you look for conversations to align one another. So starting with a a getting to know you approach and focusing on what's important for the other side in terms of their overall style, their maybe their company goals, um, that can really inform the negotiation and deal-making process and make it go a lot faster if you just take a little bit of time to get to know one another up front. And even understanding what pressures are staring them in the face outside of the current deal is really good to know. Like if they've recently had a merger or they're looking at um, uh, a major layoff, et cetera. Um, so the other thing I think that's super valuable that I've learned, and I've learned this from other people who have done it to me, is the value of just picking up the phone and talking with someone to develop an understanding of the issue or problem. A lot of the contract work that we do is with, you know, track changes on this large complex document and you see somebody's comment off in the margin and you 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 kind of don't understand it or get it or you really disagree with it. And sometimes it's really valuable to know why they said that, you know, what is behind that clause rejection or whatever, because there might be a completely different way to solve it than what you thought of. Um, because I find that email and the written word often is not as clear as a conversation. And through conversation, you get to a solution much faster. And speed of negotiation to me is one of the, is quite an important thing. While you need to be careful you also really need momentum. You need to keep it going because if you don't, things can fall apart. The other side can change their strategic objectives. You know, things change if you don't go ahead and get it done. Yeah, so. ab- absolutely. And I often find um, that you can accomplish more maybe in a 15 minute to 30 minute phone call than you can maybe in two hours of trading emails or maybe lost days in trading emails. And I would think for somebody like you, who's doing so many different things as pretty much a one person shop that having, you know, speed of negotiation and getting as many of these deals done as you can, having speeding these things up and getting them taken care of quickly versus trading days worth of emails is probably a huge help. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more fun too. 
Oh, yeah. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, you don't realize what is really driving somebody. You can't tell through an email or um, track changes in a document. You really just need to establish that, you know, personal connection and get that trust to be able to really understand what the issue might be. Well, and you pick up lots of other things. You pick up tone, you pick up hesitancy, you, you, you pick up so many things through a phone conversation that would be lost by email. And at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is understand one another so that you can reach a common understanding and a common agreement. And yes, you're not going to agree on everything, but you, you need to come to, to some common ground. That's the whole purpose of negotiation and, and, and that. Absolutely. Can you tell us some of your office's biggest success stories? Oh, geez, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, for, for me, my biggest success stories are my student interns. I have really, really loved helping my student interns to um, become introduced to the field and start learning about these complexities, wins, and challenges that we all have. So I usually have um, one to four interns at a time in my six-month introductory program, and then a smaller number of more advanced students that are in the program, usually while they're in some kind of holding pattern while they seek out their next position. Oftentimes, they're seeking out a position in, in tech transfer. So I've had students go on to work in business development for pharma as licensing associates, as patent agents, budding patent lawyers, venture capitalists, and medical liaisons. I'm just really super proud of their successes and how they turned all those little details and small and big and everywhere in between things that they learned at uh, Versity's Tech Transfer Office and turned it into um, a new career and new possibilities for themselves. Sounding like you're really, it, really paying it forward for kind of what your college mentors did did for you. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's I think that's what it's all about. And in science, we see lots of examples of that. You know, our scientific colleagues get to do it, and I was like, I have time for this. I've got I've got the heart for this. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to have I'm going to have students too. <laughs> that's great. That's really great. Yeah. So the other, I think the other thing that was a really difficult thing for me to do that I, um, I think of as a success now, but I, I didn't in the beginning, um, was pivoting our strategic direction and my executive team's expectations of the office. Our office function used to be known as intellectual property management. That's, that's what they asked me to do. That was my first title in this. I was the IP manager. So it's kind of similar to Autumn's um, maturation, you know, from this association of university technology managers into just Autumn now because we're more than just university technology managers, right? So it's kind of the same thing for me that I really matured from just focusing on patent matters to an office that was responsible for innovation development. Um, And this meant having lots of conversations about goals and shared visions, um, trying to convince people to who were very risk averse and were used to me just managing patents to go ahead and 
give me a shot and turn me loose on this other this other work. But it's been super rewarding for me and has helped me to stay motivated um, when the office is part of the entire process and the exciting parts of the process and not just the patent and legal protections side of the tech transfer business. Awesome. Awesome. What would you say some of your office's biggest challenges are? Um, Right now, for us, I think it's how we participate in startup activity. Like I said, we don't do a whole lot of it. And one reason for that, that we didn't spend a whole lot of time advancing startups, with the exception of that really, of that one really large successful one, is that startups are an incredible amount of work and ultimately need a fairly substantial investment of money. And in the Midwest, you might know that historically we've got tons of great science and great people that work very hard at driving projects forward. However, our investors and our investment community tend to be quite risk averse and make much smaller investments than um, perhaps people would see on the Golden Coast or the East Coast. And startups are inherently risky with 80% or more fail rates and finding local investors, which are usually the ones you can find as the people local who tolerate that risk. It's just much more difficult here in this geography. So I think now though, the state has been making a lot of efforts with other nearby states like Minnesota and Michigan, especially to call ourselves the middle coast. You know, there might be the East coast and the West coast, but we're the middle coast. (laughs) And There's a lot of groups working together at the state and regional levels to find ways to find money to de-risk the technologies and advance them to the next step. You know, we're always we're always kind of focused on that next step. Our our director of research admin is a long distance runner. And I asked her once, you know, what's what's really what's like the hardest thing about distance running that you do? She said not tripping and falling down. You have to focus on where your foot is going to fall the very next time. And I think, I think that's what we have to do in, um, in the Wisconsin community and trying and building each of those very next steps. So we've got a, a, a really cool new program here in the Milwaukee area that I'm sure lots of people listening have access to. It's the NSF, our National Science Foundation I-Corps program. It's having a really big influence on individual entrepreneurs and the teams to educate them about the startup process and give them some tools to figure out things like um, how to pivot, how to design and build a product that the market will actually want rather than designing the product that you think they want. So these kinds of programs are really doing a lot to build the innovation ecosystem. And we're we're starting to see some benefit from that in Wisconsin and some changes and starting to have more startup activity than ever before. Just last year, we actually booked two startups in a single year, which for me was an all-time record. Like to book one would have been a big deal, but two in one year, it was like, whoa, we're on fire. <laughs> yeah, I, I talked with Mark Seedham, um a couple of weeks back and he mentioned 
at um, the University of New Hampshire Innovations. The NSF iCorp there has been very instrumental in, in um, developing startups too. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it for for the middle coast, which I like much better, I have to be honest, than flyover country, which is typically how we're referred to. Right. How about um, women inventors and entrepreneurs? This is something I'm interested in. And I always like to ask the, the people I talk with about whether or not their offices have any programs to help encourage or assist women inventors and entrepreneurs. Uh, how about adversity? Do you have anything or do you um, do anything special or particular in your role there? Mm-hmm. Well, we have um, we have started as an organization to really embrace equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, I've, I sat on a focus group just a couple of weeks ago around this particular topic. In the sciences, I think we, we still struggle for complete um, gender parity uh, for things like um, roles in executive leadership, on editorial panels, etc. You know, we still see lots of examples of panels, panels made up of men. Um, and so there are fewer women, and es- especially when you look at the data and the statistics around women inventors, um, women are still in the minority, even though they hold about 50% of the jobs in science, they hold lower level jobs, and they aren't named as inventors on patents nearly as often. And they don't come forward with disclosures nearly as often either. So I've heard this data, and I've always made a point to go around and ask my investigator group and kind of check in with them, how they're doing, what they have new and exciting going on. But I especially try to do this with the quiet folks, because I know the I know the um, the loud ones, the outgoing ones, they're going to come to me anyway. So I try to go out and target those people who are especially quiet. And oftentimes it's these interactions that spark an invention disclosure that otherwise would not have happened, that otherwise that person would not have um, brought forward. And my investigators who tend to be the, the naturally quietest ones include those underrepresented group. They include the women the junior faculty, people of color, those born outside the U.S. So I make a point to see them at least one to two times a year and have a one-on-one conversation. I know that's impossible for a lot of people in tech offices or they think it's impossible, but it's not as hard as you think if you think of, you know, poking your head into somebody's office and just being generally present and seen on a regular basis. Um, The other thing I do here is I really try to help celebrate and spotlight our innovations at various points in their maturity. And I do this across the board. Um, Our institute has just over half a dozen female investigators. And whenever there's a big success in terms of a grant funded or a publication in a prestigious journal, I do something, I don't know. I I don't know what you'll think about this, but I bake a cake. That's awesome. I share it it at our staff meeting. You you celebrate, which is great. Because yeah, everyone likes cake, and you know you're going to get people together and talk. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and it makes them think that when they have to deal with me and they have to deal with the tech transfer office, 
they maybe they have a good taste in their mouth. They have those good memories. Exactly. I, I should try that as an attorney, bake, bake a cake and see if that uh, improves my odds here instead of, oh, God, here comes a patent attorney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, it doesn't matter what race, gender, age, experience level they are. They all get cake or some treat when something really big or major happens, but they all get recognized. And I think it's super important to recognize, especially those people who wouldn't other otherwise sort of bring themselves forward and say, hey, I just had a great success because many of those folks in those underrepresented groups tend to be shy and they don't they don't bring attention to themselves even when it's deserved. But so I'm I'm really especially excited to make a cake for somebody's first R01 grant or their first granted patent when I've got a brand new inventor who's not one of my my serial inventors. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, we do a lot of fun things with, you know, wall plaques and balloons and confetti. I make announcements and emails to our entire research institute. Um, We do little speeches in the lunchroom, just whatever we can to to bring attention and bring a, a positive light and spotlight to successes. That's great. And I I think especially women, we have a tendency sometimes to really um, uh, undervalue is the word that comes to mind sometimes our accomplishments. So I think the fact that you're trying for everyone to make sure everyone's um, accomplishments are recognized equally and and even for people who are maybe a little bit shy about acknowledging them that, that they get that recognition. So I think that's awesome. Um, I wanted to talk about Autumn. You've been an active member in the organization for quite some time and a leader uh, in it as well. In fact, you're the chair-elect for the board of directors. Can you talk a little bit about Autumn's evolution and what the organization has meant to you? Sure. Um, So early on in my career, a colleague kept insisting that I join this organization, Autumn, and I kept at, I calling him up and asking him questions about this, that, and the other thing. And he would tell me, oh, if you just went to Autumn's XYZ course, you would learn that blah, blah, blah. And he kept rattling off all this important information that he got from Autumn. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh, this is an association of university technology managers. Do I belong or not? And I got a little bit hung up on that word um, university because I was working at a um, hospital-like environment at a research institute. And so I was a little reticent, but then I saw all the really cool um, people and the really cool educational content that they had and realized that I really did have a lot in common with those people. So I joined, I got involved, I started leading some coursework and delivering some courses and got asked to chair the marketing and communications portfolio through my role in facilitating and being on the Better World Project Committee, which I wound up um, leading and sharing for a number of years. And so it's been a lot of fun to work on committees and learn alongside people um, some of the technical aspects of tech transfer. Um, Some people might not know this, but Autumn has had a really big impact not just in the U.S. Us in the U.S., we tend to focus on North America and the United States. But Autumn has a really big international presence as well. And we are, we are working alongside the ATTP, the Alliance for Technology Transfer Professionals, which is the um, 
association, which helps give out the RTTP credential. They're working on coming up with uh, a definition for tech transfer as a profession. You know, what are the skill sets we have? What are what is the formal education that you would expect to find on a person with an RTTP or CLP type of credential? So Autumn's been really instrumental in that, along with just providing so much content. I mean, there's classes, webinars, networking, in-person meetings. It's just touched an, an enormous number of people's professional lives. So as the people of tech transfer grow in their job responsibilities, and they, um, as, as we've talked about in the, in, in the past, our job responsibilities have somewhat shifted over time, the content and focus of Autumn has shifted as well to embrace that change and that need for new content. So. Now, for, for, for one example, we have um, classes for marketing professionals in tech transfer offices led by people with degrees in marketing, for example. So there's this, um, there's been a trend toward um, specialization along certain, certain particular um, lines. And, you know, I really credit the, the quality of the programming to the quality of the, the Autumn team that's working on it, led by Steve Sasalka, our CEO, and Leif Smith-Barnes, our Chief of Marketing, with uh, Paul Stark, Barb Gunderson, Liz Frame. They're really leading us into the future in a great way. And I'm sure those um, people that are familiar with Autumn realize that we're a, a volunteer um, organization, and the volunteers guide uh, direction and do a lot of the, the boots on the ground um, kind of work. And those are people like you and me who volunteer to lead panels, teach courses, sit on committees, etc. So it's really this rich environment of colleagues and um, networks and knowledge. And if you're in tech transfer, you just got to be in autumn <laughs> because it's the place to be. It's really an amazing organization. I mean, I've been a member of Autumn for over 25 years, and I remember my first few Autumn meetings, I think maybe there were two or 300 people there, and now you go to the annual meeting, and it's over 1,000 people. And one of the things... Over 2,000. Yeah, no, yeah, over 2,000 people. Yeah, and I know that's what you were expecting in San Diego before we had you, you had to cancel it because of the pandemic. And that was um, one of the things that was really interesting, too, because I actually had a number of podcasts lined up for Autumn National. And I had a lot of those podcasts were people from outside the, the U.S., from Japan, from Singapore, from Australia, from Europe. Um, and I was looking forward to having the opportunity to talk about how Autumn has expanded its reach over time and, and the impact it's had. Um, outside the U.S. So it's it's really quite an amazing organization and really dedicated set of volunteers who really work tirelessly to, to try and help universities, I think, improve and make sure they get the training and the skill sets and the advancement and, and whatever they need. So it's really been quite fun to watch. And it's, in my opinion, just an amazingly dynamic organization. Yeah, we're we're lucky, too, that it's been led by very dedicated people throughout the years who have known the value of um, money 
to keep us stable. Many organizations who have had to cancel their meetings were not able to issue their members refunds because they just couldn't, right? They didn't have the money to do it. And we have, you know, my kids, as they, as they were growing up and leaving home, I told them, yeah, the first thing you have to do is make yourself an emergency fund, make sure you're saving enough so that if something happens, you can survive for a while. You know, people lose jobs, cars die, et cetera. Well, autumn lost its biggest revenue maker for the year <clears throat> in the annual meeting. And we'll be fine. It's yes, it's a pretty major hit, but we'll be fine. We have enough money in the bank for approximately a year of operating. Um, hopefully this won't happen again when we're in Seattle next year. I hope not. It's, uh, I was looking. For, yeah, I, I think like you, since I'm in Chicago and you're in Milwaukee, we were looking forward to beautiful San Diego in March. Um, but uh, Seattle will be really nice in March. So but hopefully this was a once in a lifetime type of situation and we won't experience any more autumn national cancellations. So. Right. So in your discussion about autumn and everything that it's meant, you you mentioned about RTTP and you were talking about credentialing. And it sounds like you think that that's something that is is important. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a we have an unusual job. We are sort of a, a rare a in our environment and credentialing helps to signal, I think, um, you know, I have arrived and I am ready to work. and the RTTP credential infers competence in a specific subject matter, and the, the international RTTP designation signals to employers, colleagues, and partners that you have demonstrated core competencies that are necessary to work effectively in the field of uh, knowledge exchange, technology transfer, knowledge transfer. Outside of the U.S., um, they don't call it technology transfer it's more commonly known as knowledge exchange or knowledge transfer. So, you know, having a sub-credential to recognize your, that you have a solid track record, I think is important because everybody hears what we do and they think, oh, I could do that. I, you know, I, I could do that work. That doesn't sound that hard. I would be able to figure that out. Well, it takes a while and it takes some experience. Um, CLP is a little bit different than RTTP, but also a, a valid credential in that um, you get it by passing a test of knowledge um, in the field of licensing and contract contracting specifically. But they're both relatively new, and they still have a ways to go, in my opinion, in training those outside of our profession on what they mean. So as a member of the ATTP board, and ATTP is the Alliance of Tech Transfer Professionals, that's the organization that administers the RTTP, the Registered Tech Transfer Professional Credential. Um, I'm super excited when I see a job posting actually referring to one of these credentials because it means we're starting to get recognition that we are an actual profession. Um, Last year, we celebrated our 500th RTTP, and the number is currently growing faster than ever. We've had a lot of new submissions, and um, we've got a lot of tractions of traction both in the U.S. and outside of it. And there's also a new candidate RTTP path for those that are working toward 
the RTTP status, but who don't yet meet the experience requirement. So both credentials help us explain what we do and signal that level of competency and experience with the subject matter. So I do think both are valuable. That's great. Thank you. Well, I always like to close these podcasts by asking my guests if they had three or if you want fewer wishes for adversity, what would those be? Well, I try to keep things simple. So I think of um, the sign that I have on my door with my own personal goal. That's the goal for the tech transfer office on it that reads, um, Diversity improves and saves patient lives through a focus on placing innovations into the hands of customers. Um, And for me, what that means is we really want advancements to get out there and be useful to someone to make the biggest impact possible. We just want to go out there and get that work done and have it be meaningful to our community. That's awesome. That's really great. And that's really what Tech Transfer is all about. Just getting that technology out into the public and making a difference and and helping others. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Um, my email is L Savatsky. That's L S A V A T, as in Tom S K I, at Versity. V-E-R-S-I-T-I dot org. Great. Thank you so much again, Laura. It's been really great to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.